Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Innal hamdalillahi nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruh wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa min sayyiati a'malina may yahdihillahu fala mudilla lahu wa may yudlilhu fala hadiya lahu wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wahdahu la sharika lahu wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan 'abduhu wa rasuluhu sallallahu alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama tasliman kathira amma ba'd my dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So we'll be doing hadith number 26. Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, kullu sulama minal nasi alayhi sadaqatun kulla yawmin tatla'u fihi al-shams. Ta'dilu bayna al-ithnayni sadaqatun. Wa tu'inu al-rajulu fi dabatihi fatahmiluhu alayha aw tarfa'u lahu alayha mata'uhu sadaqa. والكلمة الطيبة صدقة وبكل خطوة تمشيها إلى الصلاة صدقة وتميط الأذى عن الطريق صدقة عن يثوري أبو هريرة رضي الله عنه said that the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم said every small bone of everyone has upon it a charitable act for every day upon which the sun rises bringing about justice between two is an act of charity helping a man get on his mount lifting him onto it or helping him put his belongings on it is a charitable act. A good word is a charitable act. Every step you take toward the prayer is a charitable act. And removing a harmful thing from the path is a charitable act recorded by Al-Bukhari. Recorded by Al-Bukhari. So Imam Al-Nawi in this 26th hadith is continuing on from hadith number 25 which talked about charitable acts as well. But there's a particular goal behind this hadith and this is another version of a very similar hadith to this where the Prophet وسلم, he says, يُصْبِحُ عَلَى كُلِّ سُلَامَ مِنْ أَحَدِكُمْ صَدَقًا فَكُلُّ تَسْبِيحَةٍ صَدَقًا وَكُلُّ تَحْمِيدَةٍ صَدَقًا وَكُلُّ تَحْلِيلَةٍ صَدَقًا وَكُلُّ تَكْبِيرَةٍ صَدَقًا وَأَمْرٌ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ صَدَقًا وَنَحْيُ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ صَدَقًا وَيُجْزِئُ مِنْ ذَلِكَ رَكَعَتَانِ يَرْكَعُهَا مِنَ الضُّحَى Every tahmeed is a charitable act, every tahleel is a charitable act, and every takbir is a charitable act. Ordering good is a charitable act, eradicating evil is a charitable act. To fulfill that charity, it is sufficient to pray two rak'ahs of duha, two rak'ahs of duha. So this is like one of the intended goals behind Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, that after hadith number 25, he gave a brief summary of what constitutes a charitable act. Do you need an intention for it or not? And how do mundane, regular, daily acts become acts of sadaqah? Now Imam al-Nawi rahimahullah, he's getting into something more specific. And that is how the acts of sadaqah that we perform are not just acts that we do to increase our ajr, but they are acts that we do to show gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is the key difference between the two. The first hadith that we took, uh, hadith number 25, it was about general acts of sadaqah and how uh, acts become acts of sadaqah, right? Whereas hadith number 26 is about how these acts are not just acts of sadaqah, but they're acts of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're acts of gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he starts off this hadith by telling us every joint of everyone upon it is a charity for each day that the sun rises. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he's setting a frame of mind that each and every one of us is meant to have. And that is that each and every single day as we arise in the morning, we should have this ambition, we should have this goal of wanting to use those things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And that is why when you look at the dua that we say in the morning, who can remind me of the dua that we say when we wake up in the morning? When you wake up from your sleep, what is the dua that you say? Who can tell me that? Go ahead. Ahsant. So you say, Alhamdulillah, ladhi ahyana, ba'dama amatana wa ilayhi nushur. So you say, praise be to Allah, the one that granted us life after he had taken it away, and to him we shall return. And to him we shall return. So you notice that there's two key focuses on this dua. The first of them is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of our lives. That he is the one that gives us life and he is the one that takes it away. And then the second element of this dua is that our eventual return is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we need to do as many good deeds as we can and stay away from as many bad deeds as we can in this limited period of time. And this is what the Messenger of Allah is telling us here that each and every single day that Allah gives us the ability to wake up upon our body as a sadaqah that needs to be given. Upon our body as a sadaqah that needs to be given. Now, you notice over here the Messenger of Allah he says, ala. And Allah over here, generally it means that these acts of charity are obligatory. When the word Allah is used, you know, when you say Allah al-insani an-yusalli, when it is upon mankind to pray, it indicates that it, this prayer that is being done is obligatory. So now the scholars, they had a difficult time interpreting this, that when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is saying that upon each and every single joint is an act of charity. Is this act of charity something that is just recommended or something that is obligatory? Something that is just recommended or something that is actually obligatory? And this is where they differed upon. And to summarize the discussion, Ibn Rajab rahimahullah, he concludes the discussion by saying that these acts of charity, one of them has to be done by mankind each and every single day. That at least one act of charity has to be done each and every single day. And then as for gratitude, gratitude is of two types. Gratitude is of two types. That which is obligatory, and then that which is recommended. That which is obligatory, and that which is recommended. So the act of charity within of itself, one act of charity has to be done by mankind each and every single day. And there's no way out of this. And then in terms of gratitude, gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, part of it is mandatory, and then part of it is just recommended. Part of it is just recommended. So now speaking about gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he says that the pillars of gratitude are five. The pillars of gratitude are five. So just like we have the five pillars of Islam, he's saying that the pillars of gratitude are actually five. And he says that the first of them is that one humbles himself in front of the one that bestowed the blessing. One humbles himself in front of the one that bestowed the blessing. Meaning that the one that is giving you the gift, you humble yourself in front of this individual. And that is why you'll see, subhanAllah, just naturally when you're receiving something, you put your hand out like this, right? Rarely do you take something from someone and you take it like this. Generally, you'll take it like this, as if they're placing the, something in your hand. And when you're doing this, you'll generally be looking down like this, so it is as if you're humbling yourself. So Ibn al-Qaim he says that the first step is that you humble yourself in front of the one that is giving you the gift. That you humble yourself in front of the one that is giving you the gift. Number two, you love the one that is giving you the gift. You love the one that is giving you the gift. Meaning that one of the ways we increase our love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is recognizing the gifts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. Now Ibn al-Qaim rahimahullah on this part, he has very very beautiful commentary. And that is that one of the biggest fitnas, 
that mankind goes through is that they love the gift more than the one that gave the gift. They love the gift more than the one that gave the gift. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you wealth, He gives you a family, He gives you a great job. And then the time comes where all of the things that Allah has given you actually become more beloved to you than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I think a more practical example of this is sleep at the time of Fajr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that gave us peaceful and comfortable sleep. And at Fajr time, we have a conscious decision to make. Do we give up that sleep and wake up to pray Fajr? Or do we continue with that sleep that Allah gave us and continue on with that sleep with that gift that Allah gave us? So that's like a practical example, that you have to love the one that gave you the gift. And to understand this properly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who is the gift giver, should always be more beloved to mankind. Should always be more beloved to mankind. Then number three. Then number three is that he admits that this blessing came from Allah and Allah alone. This blessing came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah alone. Meaning that each and every single thing that we have in our lives, from the good of it, is purely from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are just the means of attaining that good, but the ultimate good is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Him alone. Number four is that one should praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing. Number four is that one should praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing. So once you recognize the blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you, you praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that blessing. That how ungrateful is it that, you know, someone opens up the door for you, yet you don't say thank you to them. Or someone helps you with your bags, and you don't say thank you to them. Or someone helps you with directions, but you don't say thank you to them. And these are just such minute acts, right? Almost anyone can do these acts. And if it's a, a crime to not say thank you in these situations, then how about the one that gave you life? How about the one that gave you the ability to breathe? How about the one that gave you the ability to see? Right? All of these are greater blessings. So more gratitude needs to be expressed through the tongue towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the fifth pillar of gratitude he mentions is that this blessing should be used in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not disobedience. This blessing should be used in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not disobedience. So going back to the example of sleep over here is that sleep is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now you can use this as a means of gaining strength in the night so that you can worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the day. Or you can use this as a means, you know what, sleep is beloved to me, so let me sleep right through Fajr, right? So then it becomes an act of disobedience, and then it becomes an act of disobedience. And this is a beautiful thing that if you would actually reflect upon it, those nights where you've had a little amount of sleep, but you managed to wake up for Salat al-Fajr, your day starts off very energetic and you feel great about that day, even though you've had a little amount of sleep. And those days where you sleep for 7-8 hours and you've slept right through Fajr, even though you've slept like 7-8 hours, you feel terrible on that day. You feel, you feel as if you're lacking energy. And that is the barakah of the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that blessing that you have from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala should be used for His obedience and not for His disobedience. And this is what Ibn al-Qayyim, he calls the, bil, the pillars of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the pillars of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he mentions in this hadith, ala kulli sulama. And sulama is a small bone in your body. It's a small bone in your body. Particularly the bones that you see in your hands and in your feet. These are the sulama, that the small bones between you know, the joints. Each of these is like a small bone. These are known as sulama. So the Messenger of Allah over here is saying 
that for each and every single one of these bones, there's an act of charity that needs to be done. So now imagine that. Imagine you have to give sadaqah for each and every bone in your body, subhanAllah. For each and every muscle, for each and every organ, right? For each and every breath that you take, for each and every heartbeat that your body makes that you have no conscious participation in whatsoever. All of these things require an act of sadaqah that is there in order for us to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In order for us to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, this leads to several reflections. The most obvious of them is if these small bones have an act of sadaqah that is mandatory upon them, that, you know, say, enjoining good or forbidding evil, or saying a kind word, or, you know, helping your brother in his time of need, these are the small acts of sadaqah, then imagine the type of sadaqah need, needs to be done for the bigger blessings in life, right? What type of sadaqah needs to be done for the blessing of a mother's hug and a mother's kiss and a mother's, you know, homemade iftar, right? What type of sadaqah needs to be given then? A greater act of sadaqah needs to be given. A greater act of sadaqah needs to be given. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, teaches us as a second reflection that one of the greatest ways of thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is by doing good deeds. And in fact, when mankind stops doing those good deeds, he's in actuality becoming ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That one of the greatest forms of, of ingratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is those blessings that Allah gives us that we don't do acts of sadaqah with them. That we don't do acts of sadaqah with them. Number three is that what you eventually learn from this, if each and every single blessing that Allah has given us requires an act of sadaqah, then in reality you cannot actually fulfill the obligation towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what the, I guess the, the conclusion of the discussion comes to, is that everything that Allah has given us, we can never praise Him enough for it. We can never do enough good deeds. Now this doesn't mean that we give up trying it just means that we need to try our best and hope that the little that we do, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept it from us. The little that we do, we hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept it from us. And this is a reflection I want to share with you, that you know, as we are in the days of Hajj, inshallah, you know, the, the Hajjaj is going to be going to Mina in the next couple of hours, bismillah ta'ala. Right? Hajj is going to begin, inshallah. And if you look at the story behind Hajj itself, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He commanded Ibrahim alayhi salam and Ismail to go to Mecca and to put the foundations of the Kaaba at a particular time in a particular place with particular people, right? This is the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet you look at the humility of Ibrahim alayhi salam, that even though Allah commanded him to do this, Allah gave him a specific time, a specific place, it's as if Allah is normally going to accept this deed because they're fulfilling the command of Allah. But Ibrahim alayhi salam, he sets a good example for us. That even though he's fulfilling a command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he wasn't deluded into thinking that Allah would automatically accept this deed from him. And that is why when he finished building the Kaaba, he made the dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, رَبَّنَا تَقَبَّلْ مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ That, oh Allah, accept from us. Indeed, you are the all-seeing and the all-knowing. And I believe developing this attitude is very, very important. That a lot of the times we think that just because we've done a good deed, just because we fasted today, just because we're going to be fasting on Arafah, naturally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to accept it. That's not the case. In fact, when you look at the way our predecessors were, particularly Umar ibn Khattab, he used to say that if it was the case that Allah would accept everyone's deeds except for one individual, 
I would always fear that that one individual would be me, that Allah wouldn't accept my deeds. And this is the type of mentality that we have, we should have, that one should strive his best in doing the deed, and then after the deed is done, one should ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept it, and to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah gave us the opportunity to do that good deed, that Allah gave us that opportunity to do that good deed. The fourth thing is the forgetful nature of mankind. The forgetful nature of mankind. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, he tells us, that two blessings that most of mankind is completely heedless of is free time and good health. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he teaches us that mankind is going to be forgetful, right? And the two blessings that he's going to be most forgetful of are his good health and his free time. And it's only when he becomes sick that he realizes the value of his health. And it's only when he becomes busy that he realizes the value of his free time. And this is something that we should constantly remind ourselves of, that we need to take advantage of our good health before we get sick. Take advantage of us being young and being you know, energized before a time comes where we are old and we don't have that energy. Take advantage of our free time before we come busy. I want you to think about all that free time that we had while being single, while being young, before we got married, before we had children. If we had spent all of that time, or not even all of that time, just a part of that time to study more Islam, to memorize more of the Qur'an, how easily could it have been done, right? Just thinking about if we just took half a page of the Qur'an a day to memorize, just half a page, over a period of two and a half years to three years, you can finish memorizing the Qur'an. Think about that. It's just about taking advantage of the free time that we have. And this is required for all of the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That try your utmost best that each and every single moment you are cognitive of the blessings that Allah has given you. Thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with your tongue and with your limbs by using those blessings to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By using those blessings to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next discussion is why does the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa mention upon which the sun rises. So every day upon which the sun rises is an act of charity. Why mention upon the sun rises? The scholars commented over here is that this is to develop that mindset that we were talking about. So that every time someone sees a sunrise, they're reminded that they have a day to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what one of the predecessors of Hassan al-Basri used to say, إِنَّمَا أَنْتَ إِيَّامٌ إِذَا ذَهَبَ يَوْمٌ ذَهَبَ بَعْدُكَ that you are just a few number of days. And if one of these days slips away from your hands, meaning that you don't take advantage of it, then it is as if part of your life has disappeared as well. Part of your life has disappeared as well. So with each sunrise and with each sunset, it is a reminder that our lives are slipping away from us and that we need to work to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We need to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The next discussion is how... All of the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us, they go into one of two categories based upon how we, react, how we react. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us a blessing, it arrives as a blessing. But our reaction will either keep it as a blessing or will turn it into a curse. Our reaction will either keep it as a blessing or turn it into a curse. So every worldly blessing that is not accompanied with thanks to Allah becomes a calamity. Every worldly blessing 
that is not accompanied by thanks to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it becomes a calamity. And this is why Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he used to say that a sin that brings you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is better than a blessing that brings you away from Him. Is better than a blessing that brings you away from Him. A person commits a sin, they feel very bad for it, and this leads them to getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is better than the one who receives a blessing, whether it is good health, whether it is free time, whether it is money, whether it is, you know, whatever he desires. And then this takes him away from getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This takes him away from getting closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is another, you know, story from my, my, my time in Medina. Is that there was a student that he complained to his shaykh, that, you know, Shaykh, look, I've been studying Qur'an with you for the last five or six years, but I'm unable to finish memorizing the Qur'an. You know, I don't know what it is that every time I start a new juz, it seems like I have to go back to the previous juz and, and redo it again. And then, subhanAllah, you, you see the wisdom in the Shaykh's answer. He says, keep trying. And if you achieve the memorization of the Qur'an, then thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for it. Then thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for it. But if you're unable to achieve it, even after all of your hard work, then look at it from the perspective that perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved you from a fitna that you wouldn't be able to bear. Saved you from a fitna that you wouldn't be able to bear. Because memorizing the Quran, it comes with a burden that you have to keep it in your memory, continuously revise it. You have to try to understand it, implement it to the best of your ability. You become an, exam an example for the people around you. You know, leading salah now becomes mandatory upon you, right? So this is the burden of having the Quran with us. Now, you can put this, you know, replace this blessing of the Qur'an with any other blessing. That a person, he wants money, that comes with accountability. You have to give that extra sadaqah. You have to pay your zakat. You have to use that money to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You wanted a good job. All that comes with accountability. And that is why, you know, I believe people, they become deluded by, by the dunya in this perspective. You know, you look at the, 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 the rights movement, particularly the, the women's rights movement. And, you know, to getting into feminism. They're like, you know, why can't the woman be the head of the household, right? They don't realize that when that leadership is given to you, it doesn't come free of charge that, you know, you can start bossing your, your, your spouse around. That's not what it means. What it means is that you now have a higher responsibility, a higher accountability with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why it is so important that each and every single gift and blessing that is given to us, we hold ourselves accountable for it. Right? As Umar ibn Khattab anhu used to say, hold yourselves accountable before you're held to account. Hold yourselves accountable before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala holds you accountable. Because if you don't hold yourselves accountable for those blessings, then more than likely, you're going to destroy yourself. More than likely, you will destroy yourself. So you have to recognize those blessings and thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for those blessings. Because if you don't, then those blessings turn into a calamity. Then those blessings turn into a calamity through which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish you. If you look inside Surah At-Tawbah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, فَلَا تُعْجِبَكَ أَمْوَالُهُمْ وَأَوْلَادُهُمْ إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ عَنْ يُعَذِّبُهُمْ فِيهَا عَنْ يُعَذِّبُهُمْ بِهَا فِي الدُّنْيَا وَتَزْحَقَ أَنْفُسَهُمْ هُمْ كَافِرُونَ That don't be impressed by the wealth and children that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to them. إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ اللَّهُ عَنْ يُعَذِّبُهُمْ بِهَا That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only wants to punish them through this. Only wants to punish them through this. 
that the more wealth that they have, the more children that they have, the more accountability that they have for these things, and in the end of the day, in the hereafter, the more their punishment increases. Whereas the less wealth, the less children, the less blessings a person has, yes, life will be difficult in this world, but he'll also have less accountability in the hereafter. He'll also have less accountability in the hereafter. Now what the slave wants to try to achieve through all of this is to increase your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through these continual blessings. To increase your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through these continual blessings. And this is what this hadith teaches us, that if you want to increase your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then try recognizing the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you and thanking Him. And you'll notice that your love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will increase. Now the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he goes on to give specific examples. He goes on to give specific examples. Bringing about justice between two is an act of charity. So in every community you'll have a couple of people that are always fighting and bickering. You know, it's as if, subhanAllah, they're just there to fight with one another. And it's just human nature that when you're inside an argument, when you're inside, you know, an unfriendly environment with another individual, you can't find a way to reconcile the situation. But as soon as a third party steps in, then all of a sudden they're able to find a perspective, they're able to find a point of view that you didn't see. And that is why in Islam, bringing about justice, bringing about a relationship between two people is such a, a great thing to do. And that's why it's considered this noble act. And that is why the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he even tells us that it is permissible to lie to bring two people together. It is permissible to lie to bring two people together. So if you know two friends are fighting, something's happened between them, you can go to one friend and tell him, look, the other person, he misses you, he's really sorry for what he's done. Even though he didn't say anything like that at all, if it will make the person reflect and go back to the other person, then you go and tell the other person the same thing, look, so-and-so misses you, he's really sorry for what he's done, and you can rebuild the relationship, then there's nothing more that can be desired. And the greater the relationship, the greater the reward. So a husband and wife is fighting, the greatest form of reward is reconciling the husband and wife. And then amongst two friends, and then amongst two brothers. And then the greater the relationship, the greater the reward. Now, the greatest out of all of these relationships is that if you can help a person make amends with his relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can help a person make amends with his relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That he doesn't know how to understand trials in his life. He, doesn't, he isn't able to recognize the blessings that Allah has given him. So to spend time with this individual and help them recognize him, then this is one of the best acts of charity. And this is one of the best acts of charity. And this is something that's seen throughout the Quran. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells us, فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهُ بَيْنِكُمْ That you know, be conscious of Allah and reconcile amongst yourselves. That indeed the brothers and the believers are nothing but brothers, so help them reconcile amongst themselves. So help them reconcile amongst themselves. Helping a man get on his mount is a charitable act. So now in this day and age, you know, no one uses horses anymore. So they don't need help you know, getting onto their horse. But what does this mean in the modern day context? In the modern day context, if you see someone's car is broken down on the side of the road, to pull over to the side of the road and help boost his car, to help him change a tire, this would be considered an act of sadaqah. An individual is locked out of his car, you know, to open up the car for him if you're able to, or to call CAA for him. This would be considered an act of sadaqah. So this is what you need to see that in the modern day context, you know, what can you do? So think about how many times we've driven by someone's car when their car is like broken down on the side of the highway. There was an opportunity of sadaqah 
that went by us. There was an opportunity of sadaqah that went by us. The Messenger of Allah says, and a good word is a sadaqah. A good word is a sadaqah. What is the good word here referring to? So in light of the other hadith, we see that the good word generally means to say the adhkar, to say subhanallah, alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar, and la ilaha illallah. But here the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam used a very general term. He said kalimatun tayyiba, a general good word. So this means even complimenting a brother, someone you haven't seen in a long time. I'm like, uncle, mashallah, you're looking very young today. You know, just a, a, a kind word to him. This is an act of sadaqah to help him feel good. And he actually smiled and after <laughs> So this is like an act of sadaqah. So sometimes, you know, it may not even be like the obvious thing, right? Just compliment someone on their clothing, compliment someone on their hair, compliment something on the most minute detail. You may think it's insignificant, but it has the ability to change their day all around. So just a general compliment is a good word, right? And then, you know, guiding a person to Islam. That's an even greater good word. So just think of all the good things that you can do with your tongue, and that would be an act of sadaqah. Every step that you take towards the prayer is an act of sadaqah. So now, I want to put this in a, in, a, in a proper context. When a person comes to the masjid, should they look for the closest parking spot, or should they look for the further parking spot? Further parking spot? No, they should look for the closest parking spot. <laughs> I would say generally speaking, my advice would be, is look for the further parking spot. Why? You'll get twice the amount of ajr over here. Number one, is that you want the closer parking spot, but you're giving it up for the sake of Allah, because you love for your brother what you love for yourself. That's one, one act of ajr right there. The second act of ajr, is that Banu Salama, they were a small tribe of people, literally about like 12 people, that was their tribe, subhanAllah. They wanted to move closer to Al-Masjid al-Nabwi. They wanted to move closer to Al-Masjid al-Nabwi. The Messenger of Allah told them, don't, because with each step that you take to the masjid is an act of sadaqah. So it is a, an uh, opportunity for reward for you. So if you're leaving, living further away from the masjid, they're taking more steps. They're taking more steps to the masjid. So when you park farther away, then for each step that you walk to the masjid, you also get more reward. You also get more reward. Now obviously this is something that can only be done by someone that is coming early to the masjid. If you're coming late, the salah has started, it doesn't mean that you park you know, miles away just so that you can end up missing the jama'ah. No, catching the jama'ah is more important than you know, getting the reward of walking to the masjid or taking those extra steps. So you have to be conscious of that. But if, you're, if you have time, then park further away. And with each step that you're taking to the masjid, no hope for a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because this is what the Messenger of Allah said. Then he says, and removing a harmful thing from the path is a charity. Right? And this is something that we discussed in the previous hadith. That the lowest form of sadaqah that anyone can do. Who remembers that? What is the lowest form of sadaqah that any one of us can do? Who remembers? Sajjad. No. <laughs> nope. There's an act of charity that is even lower and easier than that. Sleeping. Go. No. Sleeping. No. <laughs> easier than that. Not harming someone. Ahsan. Fantastic. That is the lowest act of charity that a person can give to themselves. Is not harming other people. The Prophet ﷺ, he told one of the companions, and to prevent people from uh, prevent people from your own harm, then this is a sadaqah that you give to yourself. This is a sadaqah that you give to yourself. And not harming people literally takes no effort whatsoever. Just mind your own business, you know? Don't do anything to harm anyone, and you've given a sadaqah to yourself. 
That is the lowest form of sadaqah that doesn't require action. Now in terms of sadaqah that actually does require action, then smiling in, your, in the face of your brother and lifting something harmful from the ground, these are the minimal acts of sadaqah that are done that actually do require effort, that actually do require effort. Now a reflection upon this part of the hadith. Imagine if the Muslims actually took this hadith seriously, that you see something harmful on the path, and each and every Muslim, he feels like he should be the one that is picking it up. By definition, shouldn't our lands be the cleanest lands on the planet then? That is by definition, that the way, that's the way it should be. Because this is the lowest form of Iman right there, that you're picking up something harmful from the path. So what does it say about the Muslim lands? That there's not much Iman there, unfortunately, because our lands are completely filthy, subhanAllah. Everywhere you'll go, you'll find like, I mean, it is really bad, subhanAllah. Um, I'll hear a story from Sheikh Yasir Qadi. So Sheikh Yasir Qadi was in India for the first time. First time he's gone to India. First time he's going to see his family. He's in a taxi and what does he see? That as he stopped in, uh, on a red light, just in the middle of the street, someone has stopped and he's going to the bathroom right there in the middle of the road. No shame whatsoever. And I was like, SubhanAllah, you know, who does that sort of thing? And that's just one example. Then you have, you know, the trash that we even throw out of our own windows. We're driving, we just finished our, our cup of Tim Hortons. You know, we don't have a bag in the car, so you know what? Let me throw the cup out the window. We've seen this many, many times. That shouldn't be the case, my dear brothers and sisters. We need to accept the responsibility that if we can't clean up the planet, at the very least, we shouldn't make it dirtier. If we can't clean up the planet, at the very least, we shouldn't make it dirtier. Now let us conclude. The Messenger of Allah in the second hadith that we mentioned, he says, and what will, you know, compensate for all of these acts of charity, from enjoining good and forbidding evil, to speaking the good word, to, you know, removing something harmful from the path, all of this will be compensated by praying two acts of duha prayer, by praying two rakahs of duha prayer. Now what is the duha prayer? The duha prayer is a prayer that's done from sunrise all the way till noon, from sunrise all the way to noon. Shaykh Ibn Uthaymin, he mentions that 20 minutes after sunrise and 20 minutes before the zenith, before the zawal, this is when the time for duha can be done. This is when the time for duha can be done. It should be done in two units at a time. It should be done two units at a time, up to a number of eight. Up to a number of eight. This is what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would do. This is what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would do. And that is something that we should strive for, inshallah. This is something we should strive for, inshallah. In fact, the Messenger of Allah gave advice to Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, and he advised him with three things. He advised him with fasting three days every month to perform two rak'ahs of duha and to perform the witr prayer. And to perform the witr prayer. And to perform the witr prayer. Now, this leads us into a discussion. What is better, the two sunnahs for fajr or the duha prayer? Who's going to tell me? What's better, the two sunnahs for fajr or the duha prayer? The two sunnahs for fajr. So why wouldn't the Messenger of Allah mention the two sunnahs for fajr over here as opposed to the duha prayer then? Because, uh, well... Take a guess, it's okay. The two sunnahs before fajr are sunnah muakana, right? So he never missed them. Right. So it was like part of his regular established sunnah. Um, whereas this is something that is super obligatory. This is more like voluntary. Um, You're very, very close. Very, very close. Anyone else want to give it a shot? Why would the Messenger of Allah mention the Doha prayer and not like the Sunnah for Fajr? So we have three hands up. I'll take all three of you guys. Go first. Uh, maybe Allah Alam, uh, 
because uh, the time of the hard people already start their business, so it is a little bit challenging for them to stop the business, come to pray, even though it is not obligatory. Mm -hmm. So that's why it has uh, more value and more uh, reward. Then the sunnahs for Fajr? Yeah. No. Interesting. Prophet said about the sunnahs of Fajr that it is better than everything in this dunya. That's how the sunnahs for Fajr were described. But that's a good way of looking at it. Go ahead. So why didn't he mention the, the sunnahs for Fajr then? Because it's, it's better than charity. So so is the Doha prayer. The Prophet told us that if you want to compensate for all these acts of sadaqah, pray the Doha prayer. But why not just tell the people, you know, pray the sunnahs of Fajr instead? But I told you already prayed Fajr. Okay, that's another way to look at it. Our brother in the back, last word. Interesting. I'm not taking any more hands. Unless you have the answer. Are you sure you have the answer? <laughs> because you're a regular, I'll take your answer. The last one, go ahead. Um, is it because at the, at the time, everybody was already establishing the Sunnah for Fajr? However, to as an as a added measure of thankfulness and getting closer to Allah, which is what the Hadith is all about, uh, Prophet Muhammad was encouraging more access. That is a very good way of looking at it. Very good way of looking at it. Let me share with you what Imam Shokani Rahimullah says. Imam Shokani Rahimullah, he says, the reason why the Messenger of Allah didn't mention the Sunnahs for Fajr, because the general rule of the Sunnah prayers is what? What the general rule for the Sunnah prayers is, that if you have any deficiencies in your fourth prayer, then the Sunnah prayer is going to make it up, right? That is the relationship between the Sunnah prayers and the fourth prayers. If there's a deficiency in your fourth prayer, then your Sunnah prayers make up for those deficiencies. Whereas the Doha prayer is a completely separate prayer. It has nothing to do with the fourth prayer at all. It has nothing to do with the fourth prayer at all. But rather, this is about you being grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during a portion of the day where there is no fourth salah. So you have this long portion of the day, subhanAllah, from the time of sunrise to the time of you know, noon. It's a long portion of the day, there's no prayer there. And as many of you alluded to, that this is a time where people are getting up to go to school, getting ready to go to work, you know, they're busy with their chores. A lot of stuff is going on. And for you to take a moment of your time at that time while all this is happening, to show gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then this is something great at that time. This is something great at that time. So that is the relationship between the prayers and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Now let's conclude with some remarks on this. Al-Haytami, he comments on this hadith by saying that if you give acts of charity or do acts of charity on behalf of your joints and body, then this is one of the ways to protect your body from harm. Then this is one of the ways to protect your body from harm. So someone that's constantly getting injured and getting hurt, Al-Haytami is basically saying, do more acts of sadaqah with your body and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will keep your body healthy for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will keep your body health for you. Number two, just like we have zakat upon our wealth, then there's zakat on our body as well. Just like there's zakat upon our wealth, then there's zakat upon our bodies as well. And that is using our bodies to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the last remark upon this hadith is that if you look at all the deeds the Messenger of Allah mentioned, 
All of these deeds are like interactive deeds. The good word is an interactive deed. You know, reconciling between people is an interactive deed. Helping an individual, you know, get onto his uh, horse, or in this case, helping with him with his car is an interactive deed. Removing something from the pathway of an individual is an interactive deed. The point being, again, we cannot emphasize this enough. Islam does not want people to become monks. Islam does not want people to just live inside of the masjid 24-7, have no job, and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you don't have a job, yes, that's something that's fine to do for a limited amount of time. But we are encouraged to go out and get a job and seek a rizq and interact with one another. And in this interaction, we treat each other in the best possible way. And with this interaction, we treat each other with the best possible way. Wallahu ta'ala alam. Now I just want to conclude with one last thing, inshallah. And that is, as we know, the day of Arafah is going to be on Friday, inshallah. The day of Arafah will be on Friday. Who knows the virtue of fasting on the day of Arafah? What is the virtue of fasting on the day of Arafah? Coming year, fantastic. The Messenger of Allah وسلم, has reported in Sahih Muslim that when you fast the day of Arafah, it will expiate the sins of the previous year and the coming year, the minor sins that you commit. So this is a great opportunity to earn that ajr. So on Friday, even if we're not fasting, you know, the first eight days, we have to make sure we don't miss the ninth day. We don't miss the ninth day. Now there's a fiqh issue related to this, and that is that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he prohibited from fasting only on Friday. He prohibited from fasting only on Friday. So does that mean if we want to fast the day of Arafah, we also have to fast on Thursday as well? And the answer to that is no. It's much better, yes, if you do fast on Thursday and on Friday, because you're you know, staying away from this prohibition, as well as catching an extra day of fasting, it is the better thing to do. However, it is acceptable just to fast on the day of Friday as well. Because the context of the hadith of prohibition of fasting on Friday, this is just for nafal fasts that don't have a reason behind them. They don't have a reason behind them. So if someone is fasting every second day, and that second day happens to fall on a Friday, he's allowed fasting on that Friday. If a person has a Ramadan fast and make up, and the only day he can make up out of the week is a Friday, he can make up that Friday. And similarly, just like the day of Arafah is going to fall on the Friday, it is permissible for him just to fast on that Friday. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. And we'll open up the floor for five questions, inshallah. Five questions and we call it a minute. Go ahead. Fantastic. So the three days of the month are the middle uh, three days. 13th, 14th, and 15th of the month. They're called the Ayyam al the white days. Those are the three days that you should try to fast for, inshallah. Wallahu alam. Uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the hadith that uh, you protect yourself from uh, talking about other because if you backbite somebody, uh, you will be uh, in a problem. The problem nowadays is somebody is in the public sphere, is uh, either a sheikh making a dose or a politician, and they, they do something horrible. Uh-huh. So if you talk about them, what's, are you making either uh, person there when you talk about them, or, or you are allowed since he uh, put himself in public sphere? Public situation, fantastic. So the general rule is that we're not meant to speak bad about anyone except in certain situations. So for example, if this person is oppressing you, then to seek help, you're allowed mentioning his bad deeds. Number two, if someone comes and asks you about doing a business transaction or getting married to that individual, and you know these bad qualities about them, then you share those bad qualities with them. Number three, 
if a person you know, can't give nasiha themselves, but they know someone else that can give this nasiha. So they go and tell this other individual, look, this is what is happening. I can't give this person nasiha, but perhaps you can give this person nasiha because you're closer to him, right? So that's another situation that you can mention their bad deeds. So the general case is that if someone's doing bad deeds, whether it is public or private, we shouldn't mention those things unless we have a valid reason to do it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Alright, number three. Yeah. Basically, I was wondering, like, I go to the university, so there's three types of Muslims, right? There's Shia, there's Sunni, and there's Ahmadi. Right. So let's if, if a Jamaat is going on, it's Ahmadi people. You don't know, is it okay to just join them, or you have to make sure it's Sunni people praying? So you don't know if they're Ahmadi? Yeah. Uh, okay. So the general presumption is that when you're praying, your Salah is valid behind that person until you have proof that your Salah is not valid behind them. So for example, if you know this person specifically is Ahmadi or Shia, then in that case you shouldn't pray behind them. However, if you, you're, you've prayed already behind them, and then later they tell you, you know, we're Shia or Ahmadi, then your Salah is still valid, but just don't pray behind them the next time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Number four. Who is going to be number four? For uh, for Yom Arafa, is it recommended that to take a day off and to spend it on ibadah only, or fasting is only ibadah that it is recommended? No, in these nine days, you should do as much khair as you can, from doing the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to fasting, to you know praying as much as you can, you should do as much of it as you can. So if a person has the ability to take the day off, then I would say I think that's a very good thing. Just like, generally the general rule is just how we treat the last ten days of Ramadan, that's the same way we're meant to treat the first nine days of, of Dhul Hijjah. That's how we're supposed to treat it. So if a person has the ability to take time off to increase in his ibadah, then this is something good, inshallah. Allahu <laughs> When I was asking for number four, no one had their hands up. Now when we get to number five and six, both people have hands up. Well, so we'll conclude at six. Number five, go ahead. Uh, so, relating to the question, Jamal and Muslim, it seems like we've got into this habit of taking, it, you know, having vacation or like it's like a day you should have some time off. But on the contrary, is it sunnah to actually go to work on that day? Is it sunnah to actually go to work on that day? On Friday. Because when the prayer is done, you are supposed to seek risk. Yeah, seek a risk. Right. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Jum'ah, He says, And then, وَإِذَا the قُدِيَةِ الصَّلَاةُ فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْعَبْدِ So over here, the command over here, is a command to show permissibility. The scholars mentioned over here, just like when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions about Hajj, that when you've completed your with ahlaltum, that if you've gone out of the state of Ihram, go hunting at that time. Going hunting over there doesn't mean it's something that is recommended, it just means something which is permissible. So same thing over here, that after Juma is finished, it is permissible to go back to work. I'm not gonna say it's sunnah or makruh, we're just gonna say it's mubah, it's something which is permissible. But one thing that I will comment over here is like a bad habit we see amongst Muslims is that their boss will give them one hour off for like Jummah and they come back like two hours late. That's something that shouldn't be happening. If you've committed to taking only one hour off, then only then commit to that one hour. But if you need more time off, don't deceive your boss and you know just disappear for two hours. But rather tell your boss in advance that look, I'll be taking two hours off and I'll make it out throughout the week. You know, coming early, staying late, whatever the case may be. Allah And last question for the evening. You, you mentioned that someone gets a measure for walking to the masjid. Yes. But, uh, I mean, if someone drives to the masjid, doesn't he get the exact same reward? If he's driving, taking a bus, if he's doing any kind of 
That is true. Any step that you take towards the masjid, you do get reward. But the general principle is, the greater the struggle, the greater the reward. That's what we'll mention over here. If required, of course. But he has to make wudu. He has to make wudu? At home. <laughs> <laughs> Inshallah, if he can keep make wudu at home, that is even better. If he can make home wudu at home, that is even better. But it's not mandatory. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that you only can earn the ajr when you make wudu at home and no. you came to the masjid. No, that would be a musibah for a lot of people. What if they break their wudu on the way? Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu alayhi wa Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We'll continue with hadith number 27 on Friday after Salat al-Maghrib at the Edmonton Trail location, inshallah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shalom la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfirullah wa tubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.